0: Uh, gosh, I, if I would have known I was talking about her, I would looked up the year. I want to say it's 1540-something. Um, but what happens is, uh, what year does the Reformation start? Does anybody know? The Reformation, if you don't know, is when the Protestant church started. And as we start talking about the church, I'm going to start saying some things about Protestants that might be a little uncomfortable. And I, every year I have this resolution that I always apologize for that, and I make caveats about how they're wonderful people, they're amazing Christians, which is all true. And I am try not to do that too much, because I hope you know that I respect them, and I wish them no ill will, but we disagree about things. And if, you, if I don't teach you why, you'll never understand what the church's teaching is and why we have different opinions. So I don't mean any ill will towards Protestants, but I think they're wrong. If I didn't, I would be a Protestant. Fair? Fair? So Martin Luther starts the Reformation, which is what starts Protestant churches. If you have met Christians who are not Catholic, almost certainly they are Protestants. Protestant churches did not exist until the year 1517, and even then they didn't really exist. It's really not till the later part of the 16th century. But what gave birth to the Protestant churches was Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg in 1517. Um, so think about the context of that's That's Protestant Reformation. What will happen there is Catholics and Protestants, the beginning of Protestantism, they will fight for 100 years in Europe. And what will happen is the Catholic church Will essentially be cut in half. And if I had more time today, I would have looked up all these numbers, but I didn't. But the church is essentially cut in half. So, Our Lady of Guadalupe, so in the meantime, right, people are exploring the Americas, and all of us kind of have learned a little bit more about this history, I think, in recent years, is there's great atrocities. Now, I I would I'm not a real historian, so I wouldn't die on this hill. I think we're in a little bit of a reactionary mode. The the Christian and mostly Catholic explorers in Mexico and other parts of Central America, there are great sins there. There are real problems. Right now, we're really big on that. Um, The Aztec Empire practiced human sacrifice. Do we all know this? as a very real thing. And it was not like a small part of their culture. It was a very central part. And there are some really, I don't know. I don't want to go too deep into it. There's some really dark things. Here's what happened. So there's a lot of atrocities by Catholics and other Christians that come over. And they're trying to make the peoples of Mexico into Christians. They fail miserably. No one is becoming Christian. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like, as I always say, when Canada invades and they're like, you will all play hockey, I'm going to be like, screw you, Canada. I am not playing hockey, right? Like, it kind of makes sense. Evangelization fails, no one's becoming Christian. And whatever, does anybody anybody look up what your Lady Guadalupe was? 31, thank you. Um, I was kind of close, 11 years, right? So 1531, and I love this, and this is, this is gonna touch on broader topics, one that, that's really important. But anyway, so what happens in 1531 is Mary appears to a very poor uh, Mexican, I, they wouldn't use that term at the time, um, St. Juan Diego. And what happens, right, and so Mary, and this is a really important Catholic principle we're going to get to, is that when Mary appears, you ever heard the critique? It's really big right now, actually, that whenever you go to, like, different churches, Jesus always looks like me, or he looks like he's from Scandinavia. He's, like, super white and, like, blonde hair. I I actually agree with that critique. I think that's, like, kind of ridiculous. But Anyway, one of the Catholic principles is is that Christ is universal. And so Mary, when she appears to Juan Diego, um, what happens is there's a snowfall in Mexico City, what is now Mexico City, which is rare, and I think it's on December 12th, and that's why the feast day happened. But anyway, Juan Diego climbs this hill, and on top of the hill are a bunch of roses in full bloom. And that's why he goes, because he's like, This is weird. Why are at this time of year there should not be a bunch of roses here? While he's there, Mary appears to him. And she appears as one of the one of the people of that land, right? As a Mexican. Um she speaks to him, he doesn't fully know what's going on, which often happens in Marian apparitions when Mary appears. Uh, People don't know what's happening. And she says some very beautiful words to him. She says, you know, do not be afraid. And one of the famous lines she says is, she says, am I not here who am your mother? Um, She's pregnant in this image. Um, I don't think we have it down here, but it's probably upstairs. She's pregnant in this image. I would encourage you all to look it up. Um, But... This image is in, is incredible. Mary Pierce, she's, she's a native. Uh, she's pregnant. And there's amazing things within this image of Mary. So anyway, Juan Diego doesn't believe her. And what, but Juan Diego the Blessed Virgin says to him, she says, I want you to tell the bishop that I would like a chapel built on this hill. So he goes and tells the bishop. <coughs> and the bishop won't believe him. Which, by the way, neither would I. Right? Sometimes, people come to me sometimes, and it's nothing against you. Maybe this has happened to you. Maybe it's real. But I'm just skeptical. If someone, People come to me sometimes like, FB, Jesus appeared to me. And I'm like, smile and nod. Uh-huh. It's very sweet. Maybe it did. I doubt it. I'm skeptical. It doesn't happen very often. Right? So the bishop doesn't believe Juan Diego, and he says, I need a sign that this really is the mother of God who's appeared to you so he goes back go look up the story it's amazing and at a certain point Juan Diego picks all those roses on the hill and Mary says to him this is the sign so he picks him up he puts him in his cloak and he goes to the bishop and he lets loose these flowers Castilian roses which are not native to Mexico um, he lets them out and when he lets him out, he thinks that the sign is the roses. When he lets him out, I get emotional about everything. <laughs> God save us all. <laughs> Don't ever be a priest. And he lets them all out. And when he lets it out on his Tilma, which is his cloak, is the famous image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Do your homework. I would encourage you to look this up. I am not a Christian because of miracles. I think that's a really stupid reason to be a Christian. The New Testament does not teach that's why you and I should be Christians. We talked a little bit about that. I don't think if you're looking for a miracle, you'll ever really be a Christian. But they can't help our faith. The tilma, which is Juan Diego's cloak, is one of the most amazing artifacts in all of human history. It has been examined by scientists multiple times. It is Unbelievable. You would assume that the image there is painted on. It's not. The image of our Lady Guadalupe is not painted on the Tilma. The Tilma is made of cactus fiber. It should have deteriorated long ago. It hasn't. It has miraculously survived numerous fires. And one of the more famous ones was during the persecutions of the Catholic Church in Mexico about a hundred years ago someone went in and put a bomb in a vase of flowers right in front of the Toma the to destroy it. And it totally survived. And you can still see, go online, you'll see it. They still have like the um, some of the candles that were around it. One of the candles bent 90 degrees, you can go and see, from the force of the explosion. It was further away from the bomb than the Toma was. Toma is unscathed. Um Mary's Eyes, and there's just so many cool things about this. If you guys haven't gotten unformed yet, by the way, this is on there. If you go to form.org and you sign up, we have a free subscription through our parish. And when you're like, is FB full of you know what? The answer is yes, but not on this. Go look it up. Colorado Springs. Oh no, that's I'm thinking of something else. Never mind. There are numerous centers around the world where people are scientifically dedicated to studying things like this. It will blow your mind. Mary's eyes are uh, anatomically, is that the right word? Mm-hmm. Correct, which they didn't know at the time that the was came into existence. There's, there's all these fascinating things. So, but here's the, the really cool thing. So the evangelization of Mexico failed. It was completely failing. No one was becoming a Christian. When Mary appeared to Juan Diego, Mexico converted, and if I had time, if I had thought of it, I would have looked up all the numbers. The conversion of Mexico is not about what people did. It's about what Mary did. Mexico, like, Mexico has problems. I'm just going to say this. The Catholicism in Mexico needs to grow. It needs to be deepened. And it needs to go deeper than just... There's a little bit of superstition sometimes in, in people in Mexico. That's a broad statement. But Mexico is one of the most Catholic countries on the earth. It identifies as something like 98% Catholic. Um, we don't study this in history books because the Enlightenment taught us that religion can't be part of history. You, it is unbelievable. So go look it up. December 12th is the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe and it is absolutely miraculous it's incredible okay before we jump into our topics questions about anything and everything okay I have a question yep
1: okay so I was watching I'm kind of geeking out good but, um, so I was watching EWTN uh, Faith and Tradition Father Parva talking about the Eucharist. Okay. And somebody asked him a question on the trip on the Rapture from Protestants. Yes. And he gave an explanation for Catholics that they don't believe in the Rapture. Whatever. Which is correct. So in the so, what is the explanation behind Matthew 24 when Jesus is speaking about the uh, what will come? prior to the tribulation and it says two men will be in a field one will be taken up one will be left behind two women grinding a millstone one will be taken up one will be left behind yep so what's what is the catholic explanation for that if i mean i understand that the idea of the rapture didn't start occurring until 1500s 1800s yeah and but, I mean, from the idea of whether or not people will be taken off the earth prior to the yep. thing, do they believe that, or do they not believe that? And if not, how do you condone it with, how do you reconcile it with what Jesus said?
0: Great question. So, <clears throat> big word there is rapture. So the rapture, what that means it's a Protestant belief that before, so there's something where at the end of time, Jews believe that when God returns, there would be a time of great suffering. Um, they believe, and they call it the Great Tribulation. By the way, when we get to prayer, we'll talk about this. This is the prayer. This is the word in the Our Father. And when we get to the Our Father, we'll talk. There's there's the Our Father is one of the hardest things in all of Scripture to translate. Believe it or not, in the Our Father, it says, "Lead us not into." So the word there is actually is not temptation. It can mean temptation. The normal Greek word for temptation is plipsis, which I think is kind of fun to say. Philipsis is temptation. The word at the in the our father is parasmos. Now, parasmos can mean temptation, but almost certainly it doesn't mean that in the context of the our father. And we'll talk about that. But basically, so the Jews believe before God returned, there would be a time of great suffering. And if you've ever wondered why would God lead me into temptation, and why do I pray for Him not to do that? You ever wondered that? I hope you so. you have
1: the strength to not? Yeah, to
0: but but why would God lead us into that? And and the real answer is that that's not what the prayer is. The prayer is really about the time of great suffering. So the Jews believe at the end of time, there's a time of great suffering. And then the the fullness of the kingdom of God would arrive. Very brief, we're not going to go deep into this. One of the things the New Testament is really getting at is that Jesus enters into that time of great suffering and takes the tribulation on himself for the kingdom of God to break into this world. And the cross, Jesus' sufferings, are tied to the kingdom. On his head, or He's crowned on the cross. John twelve twenty four. He says, "When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself." That's an image of a king being lifted up, and his subjects coming to him. Um, on his above his head is is I N R I Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Blah 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 blah. Okay, Catholics don't believe in the rapture, and what the rapture is is that very late. My understanding of it is actually at least 18th or not 19th century. I'm a little rusty on this. But the, the rapture is the idea that before this time of great suffering comes, that everyone who is righteous and is a good Christian would be taken out of the world so they wouldn't suffer. And then this time this great suffering and judgment would come on the world. If you've ever heard of the Left Behind books, oh yeah, read the whole thing. that's what this is based on. <clears throat> so the Left Behind is about the rapture, and it's about that phrase that you cited in Matthew 24, one person will be at the mill, another will be in bed. There'll be two two men in the in, in beds, One will be taken, one will be left behind. Um, two problems with this, and without going forever, the two problems. Catholics, there's three problems with this. One is that Cath. Right now, we live in a culture where something new is like really cool, and we love it. In in the Catholic world, truth comes from Christ, and so when something's brand new and we've never heard of it before, it's under suspicion. So no one has ever heard of the rapture until at the very, very, very earliest, 200 years ago. I My understanding is actually much newer than that. Um, that's the first problem. The deeper problem, I'm going to figure one of the three. Oh, the second one, this is also not as deep. In context, Jesus compares in that passage. He says one will be left, one will be taken, one will be left behind. And he compares it to Noah. Here's the problem. If you use Noah as the paradigm, in Noah, the ones who are left behind are Noah and his family, who are the righteous ones. The ones who are taken in the flood are the wicked. And so to, to read Matthew 24 and Mark 13 this way, and to understand it this way, you have to reverse Jesus' image.
1: I don't know how would. He basically killed everybody besides Noah. But they're taken. As opposed
0: to taken. Um. So, 24-37. So, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, (coughs) marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. So the first point, I guess, would be in context. This passage isn't about the rapture. It's about people are doing all the ordinary human things they do. They're having parties, they're getting married, they're doing all this stuff. And no one was ready for the day that God sent the flood. So the first, the context is actually about being ready. And that's what Matthew 24 is all about. And they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus right there says the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. People weren't ready. Some were left behind. Some were taken. Then two men will be in the field. One is taken. One is left. The modern Protestant read of this is God saves people out of suffering and those who are wicked are left behind. Now, it's a technical point, but if if Noah's analogy holds... Those who are left behind are not the wicked, they're the righteous. And Jesus explicitly says it will be like the days of the Son of or like the days of Noah. Think about that. I just it takes a little bit of time to like wrap your head around that. But I actually like I've heard that from lots of different scripture scholars, and they all say that. If you're actually going to use that image the way it's used in Matthew 24, the ones who are taken. Um, would be the wicked, not the righteous. So it falls apart there, but the most devastating thing is is very simple and very profound. The Protestant idea is that God saves us from suffering. That contradicts all of the New Testament. The idea is that God loves us, and this is part of the health and wealth gospel. God loves you. He wants you to not suffer. Now, God doesn't want us to suffer. Of course, he doesn't want that. But the Christian message is not a message of God loves you, I'm going to make your life easy. I'm going to keep you from any suffering. That's not the Christian message. Jesus' message is not that he saves us from the cross, it's that he saves us through the cross. And all over the New Testament, his line is, if any man would follow me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and come follow me. And so the Catholic read is that the way that Jesus saves us is that you have to like, it's, it's actually going to hurt. But everything in life that matters does. Everything. Patrick and I were talking about this today on the podcast. Is that when you love someone, and actually for you to become a better person means you have to lose your life. When you get married, when you have kids, when you do anything, anything in life that matters, Means you have to surrender something and let go, and the irony is that that is how you find joy in life. And so people will talk about this. They're like, Brian, Father Brian, how come you're, you can't get married? Aren't you miserable? And the answer is yes, but for other reasons. Right? No. It is hard. It's hard to be celibate. It's hard not to be married. I, I, there, I would love to be married. The key to happiness is not having things the way you want them. It's to love something enough that you will lose your life for it. And so that's the Catholic response. It's way too long an answer, but I think it's a pretty darn good one. Any other questions? Steph, Patrick? Yeah.
1: I don't know how this relates, but.
0: (laughs) Good intro. (laughs) There's some
1: confusion about the COVID vaccine with its link to abortion. Are Catholics allowed to use a vaccine that has a link to abortion? And specifically, some vaccines use aborted cell lines. The COVID one, as far as I know, understand understand what's tested on aborted baby cell lines.
0: Yep. Thank you for asking an easy question. <laughs> so the real quick answer, I'll try to be quick on this and then we, get, we gotta move. So there's, there is an answer to this. We're actually gonna be sending this out to the whole parish soon because, so here's the thing. The question here is about participation in evil. So like we know this in our justice system. If, um, so if, if my cousin's gonna rob a bank, I'm like if well, I don't want to rob a bank, Can I hide him in my house? What if my cousin robbed a bank and my family's poor and we can't make our mortgage payments and I'm terrified for my family and my cousin says, hey FB, why wouldn't it be FB if I had a family? Hey Brian, I know that you're struggling financially. I've got a lot of money and I know that he robbed a bank. Can I accept that money? Tough question, isn't it? You don't have to have the answer. It's a tough question. I wouldn't lean towards no on that one. <clears throat> but but this is a little bit like that. So the church has lots as a very long history of thinking very deeply about not just how you feel about something. My, I remember I took a philosophy course at CU. Worst course ever. After I actually studied philosophy, I was like that guy should be fired immediately because all we did is we read about a controversial subject and then we just debated. That's not philosophy. Philosophy is learning how to think. And we literally just debated on super controversial issues. Okay, so with this one, vaccine vaccine lines, and we'll get to this, is is can the, the basic principle is uh, if someone does good, but they do evil to accomplish a good, is that okay? And the church is going to say no right because the ends don't justify the means the ends that's what that phrase means the ends do not justify the means but this question what the answer is going to be and sorry for a long response the answer is going to be it's okay to get the vaccine and the best catholic thinkers out there are all universally saying this and the reason is some vaccines are developed from from stem cells from aborted children, we think that's a really bad thing. Because we believe all life is sacred and then and we'll get to this when we talk about abortion, we'll talk about why Catholics are always pro-life. We will talk about that. But just because there's a good result doesn't mean the whole thing's good. Right? If um you can think of a thousand examples of this, right? But like, if I wanted, my, my usual example is if I want to help children's hospital and I want to help find a cure for cancer for children who have cancer, no one would object to that. But what if I went around and I killed 10 people and I stole all their money, so I did an evil thing so that good could come about? The church would say you can't do that. But the, the vaccine thing is this. those These vaccines if they're developed from aborted um, stem cell lines, the facts of the matter is that those, the stem cell lines that vaccines that come from aborted stem cells are from, are from the 1970s. So with COVID right now, companies have generally stopped I don't know all the facts on this. I will give more because this is really important. Um, But we don't have new lines of vaccines. You can't kill a baby to have a cure to help other people. Does that make sense? That's a great effect. We all wanna help people. We don't want anyone else to die. You can't kill someone intentionally and say we need to kill you and use your DNA so we can help other people. No one is currently aborting children for the sake of developing vaccines. And so the church has a long line of thinking on this. And they've thought very, very deeply about this question. And there are different principles we'll talk about. There's one called the principle of double effect. But basically it has to be proportionate. And so last, last example would be this. Basically how the church looks at this right now, and I've read a fair amount on this, Starbucks is one of the most pro-abortion companies on the planet. So I know a lot of Catholics who will not go to Starbucks. They absolutely refuse. And what the church would essentially say is, we should all fight for a world where I can just get a cup of coffee without my coffee company promoting serious evil. But... If you go and get a latte at Starbucks, you didn't commit a sin. We're, you're so far removed from the act of the support of abortion. And if we followed a principle where we said, anyone who ever does something evil, I can't associate with them. Good luck. Even the abortion issue, which is, in my mind, one of the most serious, I, I get so frustrated. I'm like, is there anyone who doesn't support abortion? Anyone? Aside from the Catholic Church. And so the church is like, we have to fight. So at the end of the day, this is a hard question. At the end of the day, the church has said, with vaccines, all of us need to put, to vocalize our voices and say, we have amazing scientists. We have amazing people working in medicine. You can develop vaccines ethically. But that if you go and get a vaccine, you are not doing something immoral. Even if you know and And this is a really important question. I wasn't prepared to answer this tonight. But the the bishops just sent out something on that exact question. And so I can follow up with that and we can send that out. And we will be sending that out to the whole parish, in fact. Because it's, it's a very relevant question, obviously. Okay. Can we move? Yep. Does anybody need a break? How many people need a break? I feel like when I ask this, people are like, don't raise your hand. If you need a break, we have a hall pass. And no, just kidding. Yeah, Patrick. No, I need a break. Oh. <laughs> you would say that. Okay. So here we go. So let's hit authority really quick. And this is one of the biggest questions. So we might we might come back to this in our next class, whenever that is. Um, If you're coming from a non Catholic background, but a Christian background, which many of you I imagine are, the normal way to think about Christianity is about me and Jesus. That's important. We all need to have that personal relationship and to be connected to Him. He's a person, He is not an idea, He is God Himself. That hugely matters. Um, but what I want to show you tonight. Do you remember when we... God loves communion. God loves communion. And I don't, I don't mean just the Eucharist, but that the deepest desire of your heart, the deepest desire of my heart, is that I would be loved, and I would love others, and not in a sh- simple, shallow way, but to the absolute depth. By the way, this is another reason why I will never be an atheist. Atheism tends to be reductionistic. It tends to say, it tends to reduce a human being to something less than what they actually are. Biology is amazing. Chemistry is amazing. Science is, physics, it's amazing. I love it. I believe in all of it. But the deepest thing in my life is the desire to be. And to love others, the Christian believes that God is a Trinity: right, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the, we believe that the reason that that is written into your existence, and the reason why you will never be happy if you don't have that—you can never be happy, right? I, there was some headline I saw the other day about some guy who owns like ninety-eight percent of one of the Hawaiian islands. I'm like, damn. <laughs> Does he need a priest? <laughs> that would be amazing. You would never be happy. You would never be happy, and you know it. You were made for this. So, God, Christianity, God wants us to have relation with him, but the way that the church has always spoken of this is that that communion, that perfect union of love, is that God wants to draw us into this. And so that when I love Jesus, and by the way, right, the New Testament commandment is to love him first. But when I love Jesus, I find that I don't just love him, but I'm brought into the family of all those who love him. So why Christians call each other brothers and sisters. Sometimes it's really tacky. And we should work against that, right? When some guy you never met before is like, "Brother," you like, "Don't touch me." <laughs> but really, the church is meant to be a family. Okay. Why did Jesus? And what we're going to talk about tonight is authority. And I just don't know how you argue against this. But the, but I also want you to understand the authority is not for itself. Authority is for communion. That's massively important. Authority is for communion. Patrick and I talk about this a lot on the podcast. The normal way to think of Catholicism is it's just a bunch of rules. And some guy in Rome who doesn't know anything about real life said, you know, let's not eat meat on Fridays. And a billion people across the world are like, "Oh crap!" Right? That's a, that's a caricature. Authorities for communion. Parents have a God-given authority with their children for the sake of the communion of the family to love them and to build them up. Okay, so God wants to draw us into that. Um, so why does it? Why did Christ start a church? Last week we talked about Matthew 16, 18. We should talk about one thing with that. If we have time, we never do, but we'll try. Um, why did God start a church? He did not start it merely so someone would have authority and say, that's right, that's wrong. That's, that's part of it. Truth matters. Right? And again, you've heard me say, and you're going to hear a lot of my testimony about why I'm a Catholic. One of the reasons I am a Catholic is because the truth doesn't change. And part of the reason Jesus founded a church was so that his teachings would not change and they would endure through time. And He promises the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit would guide that church and keep it from teaching error. But that's not the fullness. The fullness is communion. It's about this. And we're, our next section we're gonna get to is gonna be sacraments. If you get this, you'll understand sacraments. The the reason Jesus Christ founded the Catholic Church and what the sacraments are about is that God doesn't just want you to obey. him. You ever love someone so much that like you just want to like almost like be in them? The, the, the early Christians, they have a word for that. It's perichoresis in the Greek. And perichoresis means a mutual indwelling. Like if you have two liquids and you pour them together, almost as if the two liquids adhere inside of each other. It doesn't really it's not the best analogy. Best I can think of, deal with it. Um. that's how they describe the Trinity is that the Father dwells in the Son the Son dwells in the Father which is what Jesus says in John 14 and 15 and then he turns to us and he says this is a great passage for reciting in John 15 you know this passage I am the vine, you are the branches so John 14 Verse 9, he's talking to Philip, in verse 10, and Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Perichoresis. And when you really love someone, right, people, like poets talk this way, right? A poet Poets will talk about, when they talk about love, they're like, it's like my heart was in another person's chest. That's the trinity, period craziness. What Catholics believe is that what God is doing in the world is that when Adam and Eve fell, and when the world was divided, Tower of Babel, right, everything splits. Sin divides us. It makes us not trust each other. It causes fear and disunion, hatred, all these things. God wants, this is what the church is about. The church is about communion. It's about bringing people back together, which is why Pentecost is the opposite of the Tower of Babel. Okay, where am I going with this? So in John fifteen, so Jesus says in John fourteen ten, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In John fifteen verse three, let's we'll do verse four. Fifteen four, Jesus says, abide. Right, and the, the word there is menin in Greek. Sometimes if they translate it remain. But it literally means to make your home somewhere. That's the Greek verb men. Abide in me, right? In me, and I in you. We're gonna to get to this with sacraments. The reason God gives authority is for the sake of communion. And when you really love someone, you don't just want them to do what you want them to do. You want that community, you want to love them so much it's almost as if your life is lived inside of them. Right? Parents, they always say this. Parents live their life vicariously through their children. You'll do that. And when you were a kid, you didn't understand, like, mom, stop it. Right? And then you become a mom and you're like, I just, honey. You become your mom. You're like, damn it, I'm a mom. Right? That's what happens. Okay. So Here we go. So authority, God God only gives the authority of the church for the sake of communion. So, to give context, last week we talked about Matthew 16 18, where Jesus gives authority to St. Peter. Okay, here we go. Authority matters. So, this is all over the Bible, everywhere. So, in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the world... One of the things he does is he names things. So God, um, God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. Evening and morning, day one. In Genesis 2, one of the things that happens, among others is that God has Adam, he has all the animals in front of Adam. You know what Adam does? Adam names all the animals. There's a connection there. And, and the connection, if you come from a Bible kind of background, it's really with Genesis 1.26, 27, is that Adam and Eve are the image of God in the world. And as the image bearers of God, they come to share in his rule. Okay, so here we go, whirlwind. The, the, if you're coming from a Protestant background, the normal way to think of things is that it's God is all powerful, and why would I need anybody else? Right? And like, and one of the questions, here's a, here's a one-liner, right? Like, isn't Jesus enough for you? If Jesus is, if he's God, if he's all-powerful, if he created the stars, why would you need somebody else? I'm going to show you why you need somebody else tonight. Essentially because it's the way that God has ordained things. So, all through the Old Testament, this is the paradigm. So, in the Exodus story, it's an easy one. We could do do Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all this stuff. But the Exodus one, we all know that. So, in Exodus chapter 3, God calls Moses, and he says, Moses... Um, I need you to go, and I need you to go in front of Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, right, did you ever sing the song? Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, oh, let my people go. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, but he tells Moses, go to talk to Pharaoh, go do this. Here's, my, here's a very easy question. Does God need Moses? Of course not. Of course God doesn't need Moses. He's God. God, one of, the, one of the Catholic, a very basic Catholic intuition, is that God doesn't need us, but God loves to work through people. He loves to work through people. So he sends Moses. So then Moses... Moses says to God, he says, you know what? I have a stutter. Do you guys know that? Moses has a stutter. And he can't, he's like, I can't go speak to Pharaoh. I have a stutter. Right? And if I were God, I'd be like, okay, stutter gone. He doesn't do that. One of my favorite things to pray about, I've given a sermon on this one time. One of my favorite things to ever think about is that Moses begs God to take away his stutter Moses had to stutter the rest of his life. Not because God's spiteful. <laughs> but you know why I love that? It's because what he says to Moses is he says, I will send your brother Aaron with you, and he will speak for you. You know why? Because God loves communion. Imagine if, right, the, the thing that I want, and a lot of us want sometimes, is you want to be good at Everything. I know the answer to every question, right? Like, I'm good at every single area of expertise. I can play every sport. I can create any piece of art. Blah, 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 blah. Our weaknesses are meant to make us need each other. I love that. God loves communion. Okay, a prophet. Can we tell me what is a prophet? How would you define a prophet? Have we talked about this? No. What's a prophet? How would you define a prophet? You're all thinking the same thing. Don't I call some, on me. Okay.
1: I just don't want to answer until somebody
0: else. You know. <laughs> okay, I'm Somebody else answer. What? Someone who God speaks through. Okay, good. Yeah, usually people say someone who knows the future, but that's a better <laughs> answer actually. A prophet is someone who God who speaks for God. Does God need someone to speak for him? No. God works through people. That's what a prophet is. A a prophet is someone who speaks for God. Uh, All through the Bible, in the book of Numbers, there's people who challenge Moses, and they say, how dare Moses assume this authority? And God rebukes them. He's like, I have chosen Moses as the one that I will speak through. This is the way the Bible works. So in the New Testament... And this this is everywhere, but in the New Testament, the same thing happens. Same thing happens, and so uh, in Matthew, for instance, so Matthew chapter ten, we'll start with one through nine. Um, the first part of Matthew, the first nine chapters, Jesus is born, he's baptized. Uh, in Matthew 3, Matthew 4, he's tempted by the devil. He comes out, and in Matthew like 4 through 9, what happens is that Jesus has been uh, proclaiming. The first thing he ever says is he says, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's Matthew 4, um, 417. Um, he heals the sick. He raises dead people. He casts out demons. That's what he does. He's doing all those things. In Matthew 10, Jesus says this. He says, he names the 12 apostles, and it says in Matthew 10, 5, then these 12 Jesus sent out, charging them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, which means non-Jews, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and preach as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is in hand, which is what Jesus has been preaching for, through Matthew from Matthew 5, or 4 even, through 9. Heal the sick, which is what Jesus has been doing. Raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Those are all the things that he's been doing. So Jesus does all these things, and then he sends out the 12 to go do that. Why? Because God loves to work through people. Why are you here tonight? I'm I'm not going to really make you answer this, but how many of you had a vision from God or the Blessed Virgin Mary that at one point said, go to RCIA. And you're like, what's (laughs) RCIA? None of you had that. Maybe one or two. If you did, don't tell me. Freak me out. Um, You're here because of someone else. Somehow God has been working in your heart and in your life, but you're here because someone invited you here, or someone told you to come. God works through people. In Luke 10, and here's one of my favorite passages where it's very explicit here. So Jesus sends out his disciples. In Luke 10:16. Luke 10, 16, Jesus says this. He says, um, He says, He who hears you hears me. Now listen carefully. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So in other words, if God the Father Jesus all over the New Testament says he is the visible image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God's really like, look at Jesus.